Welcome to a Podstemology. You know what I like a lot more than materialistic things? Knowledge. What is this? It's a podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of a Podstemology, and an especially warm welcome to anyone who is new to the show. I'm Dr. Mark Fabian from the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. Every episode, we bring you a conversation with someone working at the knowledge frontier, typically a young scholar with ideas hot off the presses. That's a very apt description for my guest this week, my colleague Sam Gilbert, who is also a researcher at the Bennett Institute, as well as being an associated state-up and insights and advisory firm focused on digital innovation that serves a public purpose. But these are just side hustles. Sam is principally an entrepreneur, one of the founders and former chief marketing officer of Bought by Many, the multi-award-winning fintech company ranked number 13 in the Sunday Times' Tech Track 100. Sam's experiences working with Facebook advertising to find clients for Bought by Many eventually led him to pursue a master's degree in political science to explore the complex policy issues surrounding the data economy and data governance. His new book, Good Data, An Optimist's Guide, is a sophisticated but accessible take on these issues, brimming both with explanations for why cynicism towards data businesses is misplaced as well as advice on how we can improve outcomes in data policy. If you've ever wanted a crash course in the data industry, I guarantee that this episode will have you carrying on about it with the swagger of Donald Trump. Most people don't even know this, and I've really become somewhat of an expert on it, I will tell you. Apodstemology. So, welcome Sam Gilbert to Apodstemology. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. Wonderful. So you've got a new book out called Good Data. Can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, so it's, to give it its full title, it's Good Data, an Optimist's Guide to Our Digital Future. And I guess I try and do three things with it. So the first is offer a bit of a critique of surveillance capitalism theory, which I imagine we'll get into talking about. For sure. Uh, the second thing I try and do is kind of make a positive case for data openness. So an argument that it's actually in the public interest for us to put more rather than less data into the public domain. And then the third thing I try and do is rethink concepts like power and legitimacy for this era of digital technology that we're living in. So that all sounds quite kind of serious, I guess, but it's probably also worth saying that it's not an academic book. It's a book for a general readership. So a lot of it is also memoir about some of my work doing data science and building a startup in the in the real world. So it's got some kind of fun startup anecdotes as well. Okay, and what was this startup that you were involved in? So it's a business called Bought by Many. Mm -hmm. So it's a a fintech company, so uh, financial technology and specifically focusing on insurance. Uh, When we started the business, our aim was to kind of redress power imbalances in consumer financial services. So try to serve better people whose needs for insurance were unusual. And what we ended up focusing on um, through a kind of series of uh, development was pet insurance. So Book by Money is now best known for being one of the main players in pet insurance in the UK. All right. Okay, cool. All right, wonderful. Um, well, we'll co- hopefully cover all of those themes as we go along, but let's start with the one that you already flagged. So what is uh, surveillance capitalism and how, how is that related to your ideas? Yes, so surveillance capitalism, this is a, a theory and a term coined by Shoshana Zaboff, who's a professor at Harvard Business School. 
Mm-hmm. And in essence, what it says is that the root cause of all of the political and social problems with the internet is the business model of targeted digital advertising that companies like Facebook and Google use. So it kind of takes the view that that is problematic, both because it's inherently wrong to infringe people's privacy by collecting uh, the data that's produced as they live their lives online. And Mm -hmm. secondly, that the... Uh, some of the outcomes that this business model produces are things that are demonstrably not in the public interest. So things that people who advocate surveillance capitalism theory might point to would be the role of Cambridge Analytica, for example, Mm -hmm. or or the perceived role of Cambridge Analytica in the election of Donald Trump, or the role of aggregate IQ in the the Brexit referendum. So so they they also Mm -hmm. like to look at the political consequences of targeted digital advertising being used. Okay, great. Could you tell us a little bit more about Cambridge Analytica and that uh, Brexit firm that you mentioned and what what the sort of controversies were there? Yeah, so I think in around 2018, there was some investigative journalism done by Carol Cadwallader at The Observer and by Channel 4 News that looked into the role that... Uh, private data analytics companies had done or had taken in relation to the US presidential campaigns in 2016 and also the Brexit referendum. Mm -hmm. And essentially what was suggested was that these companies, uh, Cambridge Analytica, Aggregate, IQ, had used Facebook to assemble big databases of information about people who were going to vote in the election. They then used so-called psychographic targeting or or psychographic techniques to build audiences of people who had particular psychological profiles that they could then use to target and optimize highly tailored messages to via Facebook's platform. And the suggestion was that this had some material impact on the outcome of the referendum and of the US presidential election. And, you know, I I guess this was or appeared to be substantiated by undercover filming that Channel 4 News did of Cambridge Analytica executives kind of boasting about their role as these kind of puppet masters in the shadows using digital data and digital advertising techniques to illegitimately manipulate the outcome of the democratic process. Like I say, there's a very important word there that you mentioned right at the end that I know you talk about quite a bit in your book, which is this notion of illegitimate. Um, So maybe before we get back to surveillance capitalism or just because it's a part of the discussion of surveillance capitalism, so what, what do you mean by illegitimate or illegitimate in this context? Yes, so I guess I'm using legitimate and illegitimate in the political theory sense. Mm -hmm. So in that context, we talk about things being, well, we talk about legitimacy as a a kind of benchmark for the acceptability of power. Mm -hmm. So if power has been obtained in a way that is kind of generally 
recognized as being acceptable. So in, in a kind of democratic context, if there's been an election and that's been held in a way that is consistent with the principles that are set out for holding elections, then mm-hmm. the victor of that um, election is a legitimate, you know, holds the, holds the power, holds their power legitimately. So that's kind of one dimension to it that's sometimes referred to as being input legitimacy, where the source of the acceptability of the power is well, in the context of a democracy winning an election. And there's also another dimension to it, which is output legitimacy, which is the type of legitimacy you get when it is generally recognised that you are wielding power in a way that is in the public interest. So it is kind of possible for, I don't know, like an armed group to seize power through a coup but then use their power in a positive and constructive way to improve infrastructure or improve education and healthcare provision. And so they, they might, they might kind of gain some legitimacy through the way in which they governed. And I suppose conversely, a democratically elected government might make a horrible mess of governing and lose legitimacy as a result of it. But yeah, really it all just boils down to the acceptability of power. So when people apply it in the context of, conversations about technology companies it's a way of saying the power of this company is is not okay uh, to, to call it illegitimate um, or it is okay if you call it legitimate all right cool and then so in the context of facebook google and and sort of these other companies that are, are famous for in a sense farming your data and using that to drive various products and analysis and whatever what is the argument from surveillance capitalism about the illegitimacy of that behaviour? Yeah, I, I suppose it's probably the key thing is on the input legitimacy side. So mm-hmm. I, I think for people who subscribe to surveillance capitalism theory, it's just inherently wrong for a private company to be able to gather data that is produced by people living their lives online and then use it to generate profits for their mm-hmm. company. I mean, it, it's, it's probably a little bit analogous or they, they would see it as analogous to wiretapping your phone and profiting by the information they've obtained by wiretapping your phone mm-hmm. or secretly filming in your, you in your house and using that in some way that is commercially valuable for them. So it's a kind of, for surveillance capitalism theorists, the collection of that digital data is like an affront to our rights as individuals. So that's that's kind of one dimension to it. Okay. And so that's, in a sense, your right to privacy or something like that? Or is it more your, your labour and your property, in a sense? Yeah. So I guess, let's see, the, the core of surveillance capitalism theory as being about the right to privacy. And then you can maybe layer on top of that some additional critiques that people will make. Mm-hmm. So there are people like, um, so, so Jaron Lanier, for example, who think that we ought to regard the data that we produce as the product of our digital labour. Mm-hmm. Will I Am also makes this claim, no? Will, will I Am does make this claim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, the, uh, in an economist op-ed, will, will I Am actually made like a very succinct expression of this argument. So the um, 
what that then takes it into is the idea of expropriation. So you you do this work to produce data mm-hmm. and then that's kind of taken away from you and the economic value that is attached to the data is well the benefit of that accrues to private technology companies it doesn't accrue to individuals mm-hmm. so then that then for, for, for people who take that line of argument they tend to think that it's important that individuals are compensated in some way for mm-hmm. the use of their data by technology companies would their response be that you're compensated by free facebook and google search is that one of the yeah, yeah i mean i i think that there, there'd be a kind of that would definitely be an argument that um could be made i mean it's, it's probably I, I don't know I'm ahead of ourselves a bit but i think it is also worth probably trying to problematize that idea that digital data is the product of our labor as users mm-hmm. of the internet i think there's, there are some times when that's true so you could definitely make an argument that when you have to solve a capture puzzle or when you are encouraged to add a detailed description to an image and the kind of the underlying reason that you're being asked to do that is to mm-hmm. help train a yeah, yeah. computer vision algorithm or something like that. And you doing that thing is actually getting in the way of the thing you're actually trying to achieve, like the tweet you were trying to send or the blog you were trying to write. So I think it's probably reasonable to suggest that that type of effort constitutes labor. I find it a lot less persuasive when we're talking about the vast majority of digital data, which is just this effortless, thoughtless byproduct of doing what we were going to do anyway yeah. online. Okay, yeah, cool. All right, well, let's, um, so as you said, not get ahead of ourselves and, and just stick with surveillance capitalism for a bit longer then. Um, so I thought we could both straw man it and steel man it in the sense that we could tell, talk a bit about what, what you think uh, it's sort of incisive comments are like where is where is surveillance capitalism right and then maybe we'll talk a bit about where you think it's it's a bit more um imprecise seem to be your main argument yes so I, I guess what's helpful about it is that it definitely highlighted a true thing which is that personal data plays an absolutely integral role in the digital economy. So that that basic observation that probably prior to Shoshana Zuboff's work, people in general weren't all that aware of the the extent to which the the business models of Google, Facebook, Twitter, many other technology companies really does rely on this proliferation of data produced by all of our internet activities. So I do think that's an important thing to recognise and understand. I think it's also onto something when it looks at this topic of engagement. So in in the kind of digital context, when people talk about engagement, they're talking about likes or comments or reactions or shares to stuff that is posted on the internet. And an important strand of surveillance capitalism theory is the idea that uh, the pursuit of engagement is kind of the original sin of the internet, if you like, in that it seems to produce a lot of unintended consequences. So it seems to lead to 
things being uh, things going viral that we wouldn't choose to go viral you know conspiracy mm-hmm. theories um fake news political propaganda um all these kind of things I and mean, clickbait it can be seen as an uh, outcome of the pursuit of engagement mm-hmm. because obviously what we've learned is th- through this like period of platforms proliferating is that i don't know it's some, something you know the content that kind of bypasses the rational part of the brain and goes straight to the sort of like reptile brain i guess that that seems to be the content that does best mm-hmm. in the context of algorithms that are primed to try and elicit the maximum number of clicks or shares or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. So, so there's social and political consequences attached to that. And then there's also negative consequences for individual freedom. So the phenomenon of doom scrolling, for example, that could be seen mm-hmm. as a, a product of the pursuit of engagement. Companies essentially having uh, an interest in keeping people scrolling through their social media feeds for as long as possible. Mm. And, and yeah, I mean, just to kind of recap, I, I do think it's an important contribution of surveillance capitalism theory to identify that mm-hmm. connection between the pursuit of engagement and some of the negative consequences that we see. Yeah, right. Okay, cool. That's good. And then, so where do you think it starts to kind of be a bit less imprecise or, or not helpful, or, you know, whatever it might be? Well, I, I think it probably starts with just getting some of the basic facts wrong. Mm. So I think that surveillance capitalism theory takes for granted a lot of untrue claims about how digital advertising works. And so, like, maybe somewhat ironically, it can itself be quite conspiratorial. Mm-hmm. So if you read people who are advocates of surveillance capitalism theory, they will talk about, they will use language like behavioral modification or psychological manipulation. Mm-hmm. Or Shishan Zuboff will talk about there being a market in human futures. Yeah. So it's kind of painting this. Well, actually, do, do you know what? Like one, of the, one of the best examples of it is recently is from the film, The Social Dilemma, mm-hmm. where they actually bring to life a sort of imaginary control room at Facebook or Google where there are the, the, the puppet masters or the, the controllers are literally pressing buttons and moving levers in order to accentuate the sort of addiction to the mm-hmm. social media app that the real person is experiencing. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's, and kind of like the reality of how targeting works is just not really like that at all. Mm-hmm. So, actually, if you go back to the 1980s, you find the origins of the techniques that get used today in catalog marketing. So, if you wanted to sell VHS video recorders or sofas in the 1980s via a catalog, um, you needed to know which postcodes you ought to post your catalogs to because catalogs were big and bulky and expensive to distribute and so this technique was developed called geodemographics mm-hmm. which basically involves gathering data from the electoral roll and from consumer surveys in order to paint a picture of what sort of people live in particular postcodes mm-hmm. so the implications of that being if you live in a 
large semi-detached house in a suburb that's a long way from public transport, you're going to be a much better prospect for a business that wants to sell child car seats than somebody whose postcode puts them in a area where there's lots, like an inner city area where there's lots of converted studio flats. Yeah, yeah. So it's just a matter of making kind of probabilistic inferences about the sort of consumer products people are interested in. And so the techniques that get used today through Facebook and through Google and through other digital advertising channels are really just kind of digital, more digital versions of this. So they're making mm. probabilistic inferences based on data. They're not building kind of very rich and complex psychological profiles of people mm. in order that they can push their buttons and individually manipulate them. Mm. And I guess you know, there's this really interesting blog recently by the scholar Lee Vintzel, where he talks about the concept of critty hype, where okay. critics of uh, critics of particular technologies or of data analytics um, actually end up sort of like like doing their PR and hype work for them because they don't they're not sufficiently attentive to whether the claims about the effectiveness of these techniques are true. Mm. So if we, were, if we were to go back to Cambridge Analytica, for example, or aggregate IQ, um, it, it seems to me that a big part of the problem there is that the claims Cambridge Analytica made about itself were taken at face value. Mm. And what people should have done probably was realised that they're sales guys, right? They're sales guys trying to sell data and sell software to, to clients. And therefore, you should take everything that they say with a massive pinch of salt mm-hmm. rather than assuming that they're really capable of manipulating people. Yeah, I feel this way a bit when I, um, whenever US elections are on and Nate Silver's um, getting mad traction on Twitter and everyone seems to think that oh, well, all of a sudden we've solved these decades old problems about political polling and now we can just predict right. everything perfectly. I'm like, no, like this guy's not a mad genius all of a sudden done everything that other people couldn't. Um, I thought this was one of the kind of most interesting parts of your book actually was, um, I mean, probably because I know nothing about marketing, but just when you were going through kind of what the, um, cost effectiveness calculations are as well for businesses about how to reach your clients and stuff. So I thought, assuming that other people who listen to this show are equally naive about marketing as I am, I was wondering maybe if you could just give a short um, version of your description of how you started to build a client base for Bought by Many, because I thought that was quite uh, instructive as to how these targeted ads work. Yeah, so in the the very early iterations of Bought by Many when we hadn't got as far as figuring out that pet insurance was the best thing for us to do. We were essentially trying to speak to a whole different set of people who had niche needs for insurance. So one of the examples I describe in the book is people who have diabetes. So if you have diabetes, it makes it more expensive to access various types of insurance including travel insurance and um like obviously this it was more relevant in the time when it was possible to travel and go on holiday but um the kind of from from a marketing perspective if you have an insurance so some sort of insurance product that is a solution for people who've got diabetes and want to 
go on holiday more cheaply the challenge is like how do you uh, how do you actually find them in order that you can um tell them about the solution that you've found for them mm. and i guess in the pre-digital era what you would have had to have done would be build a relationship with the major diabetes ch- um, charities or maybe you could have found a an internet forum or bullet board, uh, bulletin boards that was specific to diabetes and mm. tried to establish a relationship that way. So that's kind of quite um, quite labor intensive mm. and difficult thing to do. Um, I think it also sort of brings with it some, I mean, you could almost describe it as like ethical problems relating to marketing, which is in interest communities it's it's quite rare for people to men- to to welcome direct interventions from commercial organizations with mm. something to sell like it just doesn't land very well for yeah, obvious yeah, reasons can imagine yeah so in the the kind of the answer well well i guess it's, so when i was trying to solve this problem of how do you find people with diabetes this was my first thought was well can i go and join diabetes groups on Facebook or LinkedIn or other internet platforms and then try and become try and contribute helpfully to the conversation and establish some trust with people there and then maybe tell them about our group where they could join other people with diabetes who were trying to get cheaper travel insurance Mm -hmm. and that just sat really badly with me it just felt very inauthentic and quite disrespectful particularly because you know, diabetes affects people's lives in quite profound ways sometimes. And it just, uh, it, it just felt like a horrible thing to do. So actually very targeted advertising of the type that Facebook makes available is a solution to that in that you can ask Facebook to show your advertisement for the travel insurance for diabetes group to an audience of people whose data suggests they've got some mm-hmm interest in diabetes so that might be because they've followed diabetes uk and mm-hmm. um, it might be because of other posts they've liked or commented on facebook makes some kind of probabilistic inference that they're interested in diabetes mm-hmm. and it will show your ad to them and actually the ads that we ran at that point were generally really positively received so by saying something about the difficulty of getting travel insurance with, for people with diabetes to that audience, the ads kind of became a place in which that issue could be discussed. Mm-hmm. So because of the like the format of advertising and social media really lends itself to people bringing their own thoughts and insights. And so actually the comment threads became themselves quite, quite rich uh, discussions and people were sort of sharing tips about where they could insurers that had good experiences within the past, mm-hmm. um, healthcare systems in different countries where they've been on holiday. So I sort of see that as like social media advertising that works in that targeted way as something of a win-win for both the um, recipients of it and obviously for the advertisers. Yeah, yeah. No, I did, have, I mean, one takeaway that I had from your book was that um, when you get these ads on Facebook that feel creepy, you know, like I was talking recently to my partner about how annoyed like we try to minimize our plastic consumption um and I, I was trying to find some plastic free sponges and most of the ones that we could find just sucked 
Um, and then uh, I got a very targeted ad on Facebook, which I've only gone back to in order to promote this show um, that was for uh, really good plastic-free sponges. Um, and I thought, well, this is kind of what Sam was talking about, you know, like I would not have found these um, otherwise. And obviously there's some uh, like process within the ad targeting that has allowed this company to identify me as someone who's likely to be looking for sponges. Uh, how refined can you make those categorizations? So you can specifically target certain groups on Facebook. Like you can say, I want, I want to target Warhammer 40,000 players. Yes. Yeah, okay. you can. I mean, there, there are millions and millions of these interest segments mm -hmm. that you can target and you can, oh, you can find okay. them based on a keyword search. In fact, I think for like, like anybody who's actually kind of interested in studying this area, it's really worth just becoming, uh, becoming a Facebook advertiser, which is not very diff difficult. You just need a Facebook yeah. page and then you right. get access to the tool. And even if you're not going to run any ads, you can yourself look at what is possible. And I, I think that in itself probably would also help people um, like in, uh, understand an important thing, which is it's not like, I'm, I, I, I know that I'm targeting Mark because mm -hmm. Mark is into plastic-free sponges. I've, I'm just saying, please show this to people you think likes plastic-free sponges. And Facebook might say, okay, there's 60,000 of those people I'm going to show the ad to, but they don't tell you who those people yeah. are. Yeah. Okay, cool. I understand the power of Twitter. I understand the power of Facebook. Maybe better than almost anybody. Uh, we definitely want to come back to anonymity and, and aggregation and stuff later, but maybe before that, we're now, I think, ready to talk about what you flagged earlier, that um, we shouldn't really think of data as uh, a kind of conventional product of labour or something like that. So I know that the main metaphor you criticise in the book is data as oil. So maybe we can start there um, and explore other metaphors that you don't like. So what's wrong with the data as oil idea? Yeah, well, it's, I mean... I guess oil oil is the most famous mm -hmm. sort of resource metaphor for data, but people have also compared it to coal and to gold and to land mm -hmm. and to treasure. And I think that the problem with all of these metaphors is it sort of encourages us to think about scarcity. So it, it creates the idea that data is this scarce thing and that what's going on is that technology companies are concentrating power by accumulating this scarce resource uh, and sort of as a function of that it also activates uh, an instinct to think about data as like private property mm -hmm. and i mean we already touched on it already this idea that what's happening when tech companies use your data is that you're being expropriated mm. but i think there's some sort of problems with thinking about data as private property like partly just a kind of conceptual problem which is that data is super abundant it's not scarce at all it's also in to put it in economics terms it's non-rival so yeah. many people can use data simultaneously and the usefulness of the data doesn't get any less the data doesn't run out it can be used and, and reused ad infinitum yeah indeed it's anti-rival like the more of it you have the more valuable it is yeah. So, right. yeah, there's often network effects that the, the more people you get into the network, the more valuable that network becomes in an exponential way. So you actually want to encourage people to use it. 
Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's a great point. Yeah, and, and then, I mean, sort of similar to that, like a lot of the time, the, the value of data is contextual. So I think one of the misunderstandings, well, another misunderstanding about how targeting works is I think there's an assumed correlation between how personal and sensitive data is and how economically valuable it is. Whereas in reality, some of the most valuable data will be things like the fact that yesterday you left four pairs of expensive trousers in your shopping basket at a, an e-commerce retailer like that, mm-hmm. that that sort of data is very valuable to an advertiser at a particular moment mm-hmm. but it's you know it's got no it's got no longevity yeah. um and then you know another way of thinking about it is like if we were to think about biometric type data so like my data about how many steps i walk a day or how much how many units of alcohol i consume mm-hmm. that data is like of no use to me by itself it is it only becomes valuable and helpful to me when it's put in the context of lots of other people's mm-hmm. data so like for all these reasons i think like it, it's just very problematic to think about data as private property and um, I mean, I guess to bring it back to data being the new oil, um, what I think that ends up doing is exaggerating the significance of data in producing the power that tech companies do have um, because we sort of end up thinking of it as being analogous to the role that oil plays for VP or, or Shell or whoever it may be and that just kind of um it just it just sort of muddies the water it makes it it Mm. makes it harder to see what's what's really going on okay so speaking of power so one thing that you argue in the book is that uh a useful concept that maybe you coined i'm not sure is uh for understanding the kind of influence that these firms have is reach power um so could you explain what reach power is and its implications yeah. Yes. So I, I did, I coined this term reach power and what I was trying to capture was the fact that for me, the key feature of these digital platforms is the ability for any user of the platform to reach literally billions of other mm-hmm. people and then do things to them or with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so I guess, and to say a little bit more about it, there's two well-established models of power that I wanted to differentiate it from. So the first one is sovereign power, which is the type of power we might associate with Thomas Hobbes. So this is a kind of concentrated form of power that can be deliberately wielded by the sovereign against somebody else. Um, so, so we could say sovereign power is concentrated and it's tractable. And then the other kind of classic model for thinking about power is the structural model. So this would be associated with Foucault. Mm-hmm. And on, on that model, power is diffused throughout society and throughout everything. And it, and it, but it's it's much sort of harder to wield it in a deliberate way so we could say that structural power is diffuse and it's intractable 
And I guess what I think is that both the concept of sovereign power and the concept of structural power don't really work when applied to the digital world because most of the time when power is being exercised through a platform like Facebook, it's not being done by an agent that we'd ordinarily recognize as powerful. Mm-hmm. It's being done by ordinary users of Facebook. So it's got this diffuse character. Um, but at the same time, unlike, um, it, it, well, it, it, it's also not a, a sort of unsteerable system of emergent norms, mm-hmm. like you know the norms of sexuality or something. Um, when people use power on a platform like Facebook, they're doing it in quite a purposive and deliberate way and they're acting on others or acting with others. So you kind of put that all together and it looks like digital power is both diffuse and tractable. And the argument that I make in the third part of the book is that that's that's really the root cause of a lot of the problems you know a lot of the legitimacy problems associated with technology is the appearance of this new form of power that i call reach power Mm -hmm. yeah and i guess so and i mean reach power has a bright side for sure like uh different groups of people that would usually be quite disparate and unable to organize are now able to get together online and then eventually organize in reality and this can be positive i guess uh like niche hobby interests who can now find each other, but then it can also be negative with uh, like conspiracy theory groups. And then you also talk a little bit about um, kind of minor, somewhat extreme parties and political parties being able to uh, gain a following very quickly. Um, So maybe then if we turn now in the kind of last third or so of the show to regulating or maybe regulating is too strong a word to start with, but like how can we, Uh, think from a policy perspective, organizational perspective, society, whatever, about how we work with data and and getting the best outcomes. Um, So from the notion of reach power and some of the the stuff you said earlier around um, the anti-rival properties of data and this kind of stuff, what do you think are some of the, I guess, the key um, principles that we should be thinking about when we're approaching data from a policy point of view? Yes, yeah, so, so I guess the, the thing that comes to mind first is like the making sure that we recognize the positive potential mm. for data to be used uh, both by both by businesses but also by governments. So I think it, it's probably fair to say that the last five years or so has been a, a period in which there's been a lot of a lot of skepticism about data science techniques and an increasing sense that there is something morally problematic about them. Mm-hmm. So, so I think I think that's probably the, the first thing is remembering that there's a lot of good that can be done with this type of data. I mean, just maybe to bring that to life with one of my favorite examples, um, the computer scientist Bill Lampos at UCL built a model using aggregated Google search data that can predict new COVID hotspots 17 days in advance of conventional forms of 
public health surveillance. So that's a sort of very timely illustration of the public benefit that you can get if you apply some of these techniques from the commercial world in a public sector context. So I think that's really important. I mean, I think on the like the, the, the flip side, like it's really clear that regulation is required in relation to these technologies and in relation to the big tech companies. But I guess I feel like a lot of the things that get the most airtime are missing the target a little bit. So hopefully, as will be clear from the conversation we've had, it feels like more more GDPR type regulation that seeks to control the ways in which data is collected and used by companies. It's, well, it's not that this is a bad thing, it's just that it isn't really going to help with some of the major uh, problems that exist around digital technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I, I suppose I should say more about what I think those are, and that they, they do come back to this idea of reach power. So as you said, um, the this distribution of reach power means that people, like-minded people can find each other. Um, that can have wonderful consequences, but it can also have disastrous consequences. Um, for example, the coordination of ethnic violence in Myanmar by using encrypted group messaging services provided by Facebook. Yeah. And so I guess the point I want to make here is that rules like tougher rules around what can be done in terms of collecting and using data are not going to prevent group encrypted messaging being used to organize and perpetrate and promote ethnic violence. And that should tell us that we've, we've kind of, we're not focusing in necessarily the, the right areas if we think about data regulation as being the answer. And I guess I could say the same thing about antitrust. So there might be good kind of competitive uh, type reasons for breaking apart Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp into separate companies again. But breaking them apart is not going to make it any less likely that the tools will get used or get instrumentalized in that way to, um, to coordinate violence. So... I suppose when it comes to regulation, I think that it's better if regulators follow um, the philosopher Judith Schlar, who kind of urged us to put cruelty first okay. and have, have like the, a focus on trying to prevent digital technology being used to inflict cruelty before worrying about some of these other issues that get a lot more airtime at the moment. Wow, nobody do that information we're learning a lot so that brings us nicely i guess to um because you mentioned the the encrypted messaging in in myanmar and stuff and then sort of minimizing harms and minimizing the sort of worst excesses of of these technologies um to this notion that you explore in your book about the liberalism of fear versus zookian liberalism um so i guess maybe can you explain what you mean by zookian liberalism start with that yeah absolutely so there's this 
incredible resource that has been built by Marquette University called the Zuckerberg Files. Mm-hmm. And that is a complete digital archive of every public utterance that Mark Zuckerberg has ever made. Right. And uh, so I, l- lucky me, uh, spent quite a lot of time um, mining the Zuckerberg yeah. files to try and get a better insight into Mark Zuckerberg's politics. And I guess like like doing that, I formed the view that he's, you know, I suppose sometimes he's presented as if he's a, a Silicon Valley libertarian. Mm. Um, but actually what the Zuckerberg files suggest is that he's a kind of classical liberal really mm-hmm. so so he has, a, he has a form of liberalism that john stuart mill would recognize as being liberal and yeah. or john rawls or something like that mm-hmm. and so he, he sort of believes in uh, things like rationality um he believes in like the importance of freedom of expression he believes in he's, he's a value pluralist mm-hmm. um and perhaps most importantly he believes in progress. So he d- definitely like, very strongly got this idea that human progress is a sort of inevitable thing mm-hmm. and believes that his role is to accelerate human progress. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, it's like quite a kind of utopian form of the liberal dream that if sure. we set everything up correctly, then we can all live in a society in which everybody understands and respects each other and mm-hmm. and everything's great. And it, it feels like a lot of the direction that he's tried to take the company in has been sort of in service of that dream. So it's almost like he believes that Facebook can be the thing that transcends the nation state and transcends yeah. sort of national and ethnic and religious conflict and enables this sort of more enlightened a society to emerge so that's so Zuckian liberalism is the label that i put on this political mm-hmm. ideology of mark zuckerberg and and the significance of the liberalism of fear which comes from the philosopher judith Glar, is that, that that's like the opposite takes the opposite view of human nature yeah. so it's a very sort of, <laughs> yeah ex- exactly it's, it's a kind of it's a realist strain of liberalism that basically says we we have to the utopians are really dangerous because in their pursuit of utopia and their belief in progress, they open the door to the worst thing that can possibly happen, yeah. which is cruelty and the infliction of suffering on other humans. So the liberalism of fear says, um, as like we, we touched on already, is much, much, much more important to organise in a way that prevents cruelty from occurring mm-hmm. than it is to uh, pursue utopia and the liberalism fear wants to trade off some of those things that we might otherwise um, value if we're liberally minded in order to prevent cruelty so one of the ways in which this for me comes into focus at the moment is there's a lot of discussion about sort of free speech issues in relation to social media and what content moderation policies ought to be on the platforms and who ought to set them. I think if you take a liberalism of fear uh, lens to that, you would think that um, actually you just judge the 
you judge the effectiveness of this by the extent to which it succeeds in preventing cruelty. Mm-hmm. And if some people feel like they're getting censored as a result of it, then so be it. It's worth making that sacrifice if we can stop these tools being used to inflict cruelty. Okay, right. That's interesting. And so from a, I guess, thinking about a few practical examples of regulation in this space, what this might point to is sort of being a bit less fussed about GDPR, um, which is this this thing where every time you click on a website in Britain, at least, and I guess in all the EU, it always has to ask for your permission to collect cookies. Um, whereas in Australia, we don't, we didn't have that back when I lived in Australia. Um, versus something like, I know one of the main issues in the Cambridge Analytica case was that a lot of these firms were uploading email addresses to Facebook um, to target their advertising that they had not gotten permission to upload from the people who owned those emails. So that's the kind of thing that you need to cut down. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about? Yeah, so I'd I'd maybe qualify that a little bit. And, you know, also just to say like that, um, I do agree with people who were sort of really disturbed by Cambridge Analytica that the way in which some of that data was obtained and mm-hmm. that particularly when people had no knowledge of it no ability to consent to it this there's just not that's just not acceptable and mm-hmm. I'm certainly not defending that type of practice when it comes to data but I suppose what what I would what I would point to is less the technique of uploading email addresses to Facebook or to Google and using them for targeted targeting mm. purposes which i think you know can be done in a way that's acceptable and constructive and helpful it's more the fact that facebook in particular just doesn't apply any controls mm. to who gets to use these tools so in the the old days if you've been using geodemographics to do targeted marketing in order to be able to deliver your leaflet campaign to a particular postcode, you'd have had to interact with multiple parties who would have to like buy into the campaign you were doing. Mm. So you'd need a, a mailing house to do the segmentation and the distribution for you. You'd need a printer to produce your leaflets. Um, you'd need a direct marketing agency to help you with the process. All of those types of organizations have their own sort of professional bodies and codes of ethics and norms about what isn't isn't acceptable to deliver in a direct mail campaign. Mm-hmm. And a function of that is that it makes it like much, much harder to do something or like, or like to push the envelope on what you can do with a direct mail campaign because all those people have got to buy into it. And a fact of these technology platforms is that you don't have to interact with anybody else to do the targeting and nobody is nobody's checking it or signing mm-hmm. off on what you've written and there are almost no codes of conduct or sort of norms that exist around how mm-hmm. it's used so so to my mind the thing that has to change is how much it, it's sort of like like i suppose like layers of control need to go into the ability to run digital campaigns in order that they get used in ways that are like appropriate Mm. 
um, and, you know, and that, that, that'll help a lot with some of the issues you touched on, like marginal political parties being able to use these tools to build their support bases. And so in terms of kind of how a policymaker might approach this, so I know in your book, and I'd like to talk about this a bit, you, you argue that uh, we need a kind of virtue ethics for business, and I think this is generally true, but seems particularly acute in the case of these um, tech companies and data management companies. Um, but if I'm a policymaker and I want to pass some laws, it seems like alongside having these companies take a bit more responsibility for what sort of um, entities they allow to use their platform, there probably also needs to be some laws or at least some kind of public discourse around what we think would be a disastrous outcome um, from data use. So these things are always difficult. I mean, we can't kind of like predict um, what a smart, innovative um, entity is going to use these things for, um, but maybe we could have some thinking about what uh, duty of care or due diligence um, a company owes. So do you have any thoughts on, on kind of how we can craft these sort of rules or how companies can start to think about responsible practice? Yeah, so I, I guess part of the reason for writing in the book about like data ethics for big technology companies is just the reality that laws and regulations are inevitably going to continue to lag. Mm, and be gamed, yeah. Yeah, it, exactly. And it's so the, the, the regulators are going to be playing catch-up. And if they're going to be playing catch-up, it's important that the people who are in control of the technologies take their ethical responsibilities seriously. So I suppose we could see a focus on data ethics as a, a useful mitigation to that that problem of um, of the lag. Um, so what do you mean by virtue ethics for data companies? Yes. Yeah, so. I guess it's probably worth me saying that this part or that, that chapter of the book, like my main intended reader at that point is mm. people who work in tech companies. I think if you, if you work in a global technology company and you start to try and think about an ethical framework for your decision-making, you fairly quickly run up against some problems with a, you know, if you if you try and think about Kantian ethics, for example, mm. because if you are a global business and you operate in all these different contexts around the world, um, very quickly conflicts and tensions will emerge between what is considered to be right and wrong in China, for example, versus mm. what's considered to be right and wrong in the in France. So that's the problem with Kantian ethics. Then. I mean, a lot of people who work in technology are, are sort of have a, including Mark Zuckerberg, have sort of got a bit of a rationalist bent yeah. and are quite into utilitarianism. Yeah. And so they, they, their instincts might be to think, oh, well, maybe I can just calculate the, the utils or whatever yeah. that accrue from this particular action. But of course, in reality, it's just far too complicated yeah. to be able to do any sort of utilitarian calculation. Yeah, and there's too much the prediction involved. Uh, utilitarianism always breaks down if you have to make predictions over complex systems. Um, right. I think any probability theorist can explain that to you. Yeah. Exactly. So, so, so then, if I'm if we're imagining this like 
tech person thinking this through, they're going to go, oh, well, I, I just, I can't do anything at all then because mm. clearly deontology won't do it. Clearly, <laughs> won't do it. So I just have to go back to maximizing shareholder value or something. Mm. And I guess the, so the thing I was trying to suggest was that you could also just think about it in terms of virtue ethics. And if you're working in a tech company, ask yourself the question, what kind of company should we be? Mm. Um, which I borrow from um, a colleague, Stelios Zygizopoulos, uh, who's a, a business ethics person. Um, yeah, so, 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 I mean, it's, it, it, it does then invite a question about like, what are, what are the virtues when it comes to tech companies? And I don't, I don't really kind of get as far as addressing that question, but it feels to me like the least worst hmm. framework for ethics for these companies. Yeah, I think I concur. And I mean, uh, earlier on, you were talking about how when you were starting to do advertising for Bought by Many and you thought maybe you could just drop into some diabetes groups and get to know people and that felt kind of duplicitous and, and insidious and like just didn't sit well with you. Um, and I think virtual ethics kind of cultivates that sort of attitude among people, just like an instinct for when they're doing something a bit slimy. Um, and I think it's much more likely that if you can cultivate that sort of personality in people, um, then they're more likely to at least kind of push back on management or um, kind of speak up when, when they're being asked to do something dirty. Whereas if you try to instill rules in businesses from Kantian perspectives or utilitarian perspectives, then I find that what tends to happen is that, uh, and I think this is experimentally established, when people are under contractual obligations, they tend to behave in a much more rational choice way. So they just try to do a maximization within the rules that are imposed on them. So if you say, well, this is illegal, um, but everything up to this point is not illegal, then if it's profit maximizing to walk as close to that point as possible, that's what they'll do. Um, whereas if you if you have more of a virtue ethics thing and they're thinking not just about what's what sort of company do I want to be in, but you know, how are my friends and family going to look upon me if I work in this company that that does things that I am uncomfortable with, then I just think people are more likely to um, behave reasonably. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think maybe also worth just touching on, like I, I, I quite like, I think there's help. it can be helpful to have things that are a bit vague sometimes. Mm, so yeah. one of my favourite examples is a precedent from the regulation of financial services in the UK, where in about 2006, they introduced this duty for firms to treat their customers fairly. Mm. And it really wasn't sort of developed at all what was meant by treating mm. them fairly. And so at the time, there was a lot of pushback on it with firms saying, well, how can we, like, how can we possibly mm. do this? You haven't told us what it means. You haven't given us the rules to follow. But then what happened in practice was that it made everybody who was in a, a sort of marketing or a sales or a product development or a compliance role in financial services companies have to think every day about what fair treatment of their customers meant mm -hmm. and, and, and also discuss that with their colleagues. And so I think what you said about the, the difference in the response you get from the people who are actually going to be doing it between a rule that's very easy to follow or not follow versus a, a kind of more vague standard that you have to try and live up to. I think there's some, you know, it's a promising way for things to go. Hmm. 
It's interesting counterintuitive proposition. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe that, or maybe all of the law should be like that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, a lot of times the law is pretty fuzzy, and then it's kind of up to the court to decide on a case by case basis. But anyway, we don't need to get into legal theory. Um, <laughs> no, let's not do that. We're sort of we've uh, more or less run out of time. Uh, do you have any kind of final thoughts that you'd want to leave people with? Oh, uh, buy the book. You can give it another. Buy, yeah, another def spruik, definitely, yeah, definitely buy the book. If you're interested in these in surveillance capitalism theory, mm. and yeah, yeah, maybe read Lee Vinsel's piece on Critty Hype, and maybe okay. set yourself up a Facebook page and a Facebook advertiser account, which is only a five minute job or something. Mm. And then you can apply your how you're thinking about these issues, like to, to the reality of, of what's there, mm. uh, rather than just to how it's sort of filtered through surveillance capitalism theory. Yeah, that's a, that's a very nice uh, way to be, be an informed opinion. Um, okay, great. Well, thanks very much for your time, Sam. Thanks for joining us. I hope it was fun for you. Yeah, super fun. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. Apodstemology. If you enjoyed today's discussion, do check out Apodstemology's page at your favourite podcast directory for more episodes on topics as diverse as tax policy and the meaning of life. By the time you're through the catalogue, you'll know even more than Donald Trump. And nobody knows this stuff better than me. Nobody knows more about taxes than I do and income than I do. Nobody, nobody knows, knows more about, about construction, construction than I do. Nobody knows more about campaign finance than I do. Nobody knows consultants better than me. I know more about drones than anybody. Nobody knows more about technology than me. Nobody in the history of this country has ever known so much about infrastructure as Donald Trump. I know the H-1B. I know the H-2B. Nobody knows it better than me. I know more about ISIS than the generals do, believe. Apodstemology.